turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, I've got about two weeks here of preaching, this week and next week, and then I, uh, I'm going to take a break for a little while. Uh, the church graciously and Darren sacrificially letting me do that, uh, and so it comes at a, at a good time. It'll come when uh, our family is kind of in the, in the thickest of the next uh, kind of treatment cycles, so continue to pray for us. Thank you for how you continue to love and serve our family. But having said that, this gives us the opportunity then to kind of finish this section. The section that started at about halfway through chapter 5 and runs down through the first few verses of chapter 7. Having everything to do with this pretty dominant theme of what does loving ministry actually look like. You might remember that it's such a significant issue that the way the Corinthians see Paul do ministry, they say you're crazy. Uh, really, it's insanity that you do ministry that way. There's a much easier way to do ministry. There's a much easier path for ministry than the way you try to do it. And we would rather the easy path. You can go ahead and keep doing the hard thing. All your suffering is your own fault. You're crazy. And so Paul is trying to help them understand this is not insanity on his part. This is love. This isn't that he needs to be institutionalized. It's that their hearts need to grow and abound in love. They don't understand what it's like to do ministry out of love. And so the, the whole section centers around that idea as he's trying to work that through and into their hearts so that they might understand what true gospel ministry is all about. And so we've covered a lot, but we'll be able to finish, uh, I think, between this week and next week, this concluding of what Paul does. I, I'll give you a heads up. These last two sermons is where Paul really gets very confrontational with them. Uh, he has tried to teach them all along the way, and now he starts turning the tables a little bit to point the finger back at them so that they would understand their whole issue with ministry is a Corinthian problem, not a Paul problem. And so this morning, we'll be in chapter 6, verses 3 through 13, and then next week, we'll, we'll do the rest of chapter 6 through the first few verses of chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, I want to pick up reading in verse, 13, in verse 3 and then read down through verse 13 this morning. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says this, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Now that is a uh, first of all, you may have noticed that is an extended grocery list here of Paul, right? Uh, there's a lot of items thrown in there together. Paul loves to do that. Uh, but you may have picked up and how unique it is that here we are Father's Day. And Paul's final plea to them really is love me like you would love your dad. That's a sad commentary. That is a stunning thing for him to have to say. Can you imagine a father having to look at their children and ask for their love, or even to command their love. That, that concept gets even more complex when you think of Paul as an apostle writing to a church. How comfortable would it be for you this morning if as one of your shepherds, as one of your elders, I stood to you in front of you and said, I command you to love me. That's awkward. That seems strange and somewhat wrong and it might even be frightening because maybe you as so many have have experienced even an abusive spiritual leader or maybe even unfortunately this abusive parent who has demanded affection from you or commanded love from you 
And so we would come to this text and we, we say, how on the, the earth does all this work together? And what is Paul doing? And so let me, let me do it this way. Let's get our main takeaway and let me maybe explain it from another passage of Scripture to at least help warm us to what Paul is saying here. And Paul's really going to make this point. Narrow hearts block the joy of loving ministry to them and true ministry can't come from them. If your heart is narrow, and that's Paul's language, I'm going to explain that kind of play on words in, in a few minutes. But if your heart is narrow, if it's small, if it's cold, Uh, we might think of it in in modern lingo, then you are not going to experience the joy of loving ministry. It will be impossible for you to know the delights, the blessings of serving God and others. You cannot do ministry apart from genuine, affectionate love. One of the more shocking stories in the Bible has always been to me the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus tells the story and He uses it in a very specific way to condemn the Pharisees and the religious elite and to explain to the religious elite of his day why he loves and is pursuing the broken things of this world because he wants to go after those that are sick because those that are well don't have no need for a doctor. Uh, Those that are alive have no need for resurrection. And so he tells the story of the prodigal son of this dad, wealthy father, has two sons, a younger son and an older son. He is a kind father. He is a loving father. He's a good father. He's a generous father. And yet both sons despise their daddy. They reject his love for them, and they really only want from him. And so the younger son makes his play this way. He says, give me my inheritance now, which would have been roughly one-third of all that his father owned. This is unheard of. This is unreasonable as a demand. It's going to diminish the father's estate. Uh, Ultimately, it's going to diminish the estate that the older brother would receive, but he demands it, and the father gives it to him. The younger brother runs away to a far land. The Bible is very clear. He expends all of his money on, on women and parties and doing whatever he wants to do. When he runs out of money, all his friends leave him. He's left with nothing. He, he begins to spiral down, and he ends up, and to the Jewish mind, this is just offensive, ends up in a pigsty, taking care of pigs and being tempted to eat what the pigs are eating because he's so hungry. And there in the pigsty, he comes to his senses. And the, and, and the language is so physical there, you almost can see him shaking himself. What am I doing here? Because even the slaves in my father's house, the servants of my father, eat better than this. I'm going to go home. I'm going to repent. I'm going to ask just to be a servant in my dad's house. I've lost the right to be a son. I'm just going to be a servant. He makes his trek back home. The father embraces him, runs to meet him, puts a robe covering his pig-stained filth clothes, puts a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet, and kills the fatted calf. And says famously, that which was lost has been found. My son has come home. Come and rejoice with me. The older brother is resentful. He's not a good brother. He's not a good son. He doesn't love his dad. He resents his father. You see, because he was working to get, to earn. He didn't understand his father gave affection and love and grace and generosity to him because the father is loving and gracious and generous. And so the older brother thought I could earn it, and he resents the fact that the father is so thrilled with the younger brother's return. He's resentful of the fact a third of the inheritance was taken away, and so it couldn't have continued to accumulate, which would have helped his two-thirds. And so it's this incredible story of a loving dad and two very, very, very selfish sons. There's a part of you when you hear Jesus tell the story that would want to shout to them, Love your daddy. Love him. There's a part of you that you see the brokenness of that home. You see the situation that Jesus is telling, and and we understand that in the parable, Jesus is exposing our hearts. And so maybe I could prime the pump this way. It should not shock us to have to be commanded to love. We have to be commanded to love God. It does not come naturally. It does not flow from your heart or my heart. We have to be commanded to love our spouses. We have to be commanded to love our children. And yes, children even have to be told to love their parents. 
This is radically countercultural because we confuse what we do out there with love, but God is dealing with the kind of love, this agape love, this all-consuming, sacrificial, affectionate love. And I just want to tell you, if you think you don't have to be commanded to love, you're the only person that's ever walked the planet that way. We all have to be commanded to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. They asked Jesus, what is the greatest of the law? The greatest of the commandments is these, to love the Lord your God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so with that understanding, it should not be all that surprising to us then that a massive problem in Corinth is they don't love. Uh, You can think back to 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, to us to teach them what love even looks like. And now he's showing them what loving ministry is looks like he's been teaching them all about ministry all along over the last several sermons that we've been looking at how to love god and how to love others he he says that in verse 13 of chapter 5 this is what makes him look crazy actually what makes paul look crazy is love that he has for the corinthians they don't understand someone loving like he does love is put as Paul thinks about the ministry he does, we saw last week, he envisions himself and thinks of himself in a picture form like an Ezra, a Nehemiah, or a Zerubbabel as a leader leading refugees back home, rescuing people enslaved by sin and delivering them back to the promised land. It's love. Lots of word pictures are found in this text we've been looking at. Crazy man, refugees coming home, modern day Ezra on the move, and now one more. He says, I think of myself like a dad who has loved my children and they don't love me back. And I have to command them. They have a lot in common, which is to say you and I, in some of the ways we do ministry, have a lot in common with the prodigal son and the older brother. They are some selfish kids. And so what we're about to get here in this section is a master class in ministry. How does ministry love, what does it really look like? Uh, what's the, the reality of it in all of its forms? And that's why you have this grocery list here that Paul gets. And in some ways, I, I want to prepare you, this, this is an uh, inescapable reality, my selfishness and your selfishness will be exposed by these verses. Uh, it will not be comfortable for us. Uh, we, uh, my prayer is that we would awaken in the pigsty of our selfishness, that we might run to the Father and experience grace and love once again. Narrow hearts block the joy of loving ministry to them, and true ministry can't come from them. And so let's unpack it this way. First of all, there's, a, there's daily ministry in love, and I want to explain to you the way the text works at least so you understand the structure here and i think the best way to understand is actually from the end and that's the command that he will give and so let's just reiterate that again he says we have spoken freely to you corinthians our heart is wide open to speak freely literally means to speak frankly directly boldly Uh, he uses open speech he's not a beat around the bush kind of guy Uh, when they're sinning he says look you're sinning when they when they're walking in righteousness he would say you're walking in righteousness Uh, he he is very direct with them and he says this is a product of love he says we have spoken freely to frankly to you corinthians our heart is wide open our heart is expansive and inclusive of you we have affection for you we love you you are not restricted by us He has to say that because the temptation of the Corinthians is to blame Paul for their lack of love for him. I don't love you, Paul, because of who you are, what you say, how you act. Paul says that's not the case. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affection. Something's broke in their heart. And he makes it even more clear when he says it this way, in return, and so I speak to you like a father to his children. In return, widen your hearts also. Our conflict, Paul's saying, has nothing to do with me. Our conflict is because you're selfish. Now, that's a command at the end, so you need to love me. But as I noted a few minutes ago, That's a dangerous command to make. 
Now, while the Bible says, love the Lord your God, and that's a command, I think we can easily look at that and say, well, obviously we should love the Lord our God. Uh, no one has ever loved us like God the Father. Uh, he proved his, commended, he proved his love toward us. And while you and I were sinners, Jesus died for us. And so, of course, we should love him. It's a, it's a love of reciprocity. He's loved me first, and so I now love him in return. When I get saved, he actually puts in me new heart, new affections. First John chapter 4, his love is in me, and now I love him and love others. So I, I'm, I'm okay with that. But others would command love. Didn't Jim Jones, the, the famed crazed cult leader who led uh, hundreds of people to commit mass suicide, didn't he command them to love him? Didn't Charles Manson command his followers to love him? So that seems risky. Well, Paul, Paul is not ignorant of that risk. Paul's not ignorant that it would seem risky for a leader to say, love me. Now, uh, when you preach through the epistles and Paul's epistles, he, he tells, he commands churches at time to love their pastors. He says, love them uh, that have this rule over you. Esteem them highly in love, for they watch for your souls. That's uncomfortable. I, I'll just be honest, as a shepherd, these are massively uncomfortable texts, right? You, you, no husband wants to go to his wife and say, love me. No father wants to go to their children, love me. No pastor wants to go to their congregation and say, love me. And so we understand the risk. We understand the relational risk. Uh, we understand the risk because it's a truth that Satan can easily tempt or twist and warp. And so what Paul does at the beginning is he wants to tell them, what are my motives? He exposes his own motives first. Paul's very honest, and remember he's going to speak very frankly here. So he's going to tell them what drives him. And he, what he's doing is he's actually liberating, knows the command he's about to give, so he's priming them before he ever gets there. He knows it's going to be a tough thing to say to them, love me, widen your heart to me, <laughs> and so I'm going to tell you ahead of time what am I, what's really driving me, and then I'm going to give you evidences of that. I'm going to prove it. See, because Paul knows it's not enough to say, here's my heart, I better prove it to you. We've all, we, we've all known people, and, and, and to be honest, we've all operated this way because Jeremiah is very clear Jeremiah 17, that, that we tend to be warped about our own hearts, right? We don't get our own hearts lots of times. So how do I know what, why do I do what I do? One of the worst questions you can ever ask somebody is why did you do that? Uh, very seldom can a person answer that accurately and honestly. It's very difficult to get down to. Uh, you're much better served by asking questions like, what did you hope to gain from that? What did you think was going to happen? What did you think was going to happen if you didn't act that way or if you didn't say that? What did you believe would happen by saying that? And, and, and you start getting towards effects, and then you can help to discern uh, roots. But to say why, motives, Paul knows he needs some evidence to this. I need some backup to this. I, I want to I tell you why I'm doing this, but I know that you might question that. They're already questioning everything Paul does anyhow, right? So here's, here, here's what I got. And then I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove to you the motives that I'm telling you before I ever command you, Cor Corinth, love me. And I ever, before I ever point out the problem is you. And so understanding that structure then, then we're free to work our text, right? From verse 3 all the way down. Knowing where we're headed, but also knowing and understanding exactly what Paul is doing in all of this. And so first of all, let's, what's the daily drive? What is the daily drive of the loving minister? What makes Paul get out of bed every morning? Why is he doing what he's doing? Why is he pursuing the Corinthians? Why is he writing letters to them? Why is he doing all these things? And he says it's love. And that would be, obviously, the opposite of fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. So he, he says it this way in verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. Loving ministry, as Paul taught us last week, is on mission for the rescue of refugees bound by sin. The opposite is the selfish ministry is limited by fear of relational rejection. Notice what Paul says here. Paul says, I, he didn't say, I, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that people maybe think well of us. So that no fault may be found with my name. So that I would keep all of my friends. So that everyone would like me and approve of me, he puts the focus back on ministry, and, and so it's important to understand, this is why uh, we try to preach this way, verse by verse, text by text, um, 
and, and it's not that other sermons are wrong that way, but expositionally working through it this way, because we already now know, those of you that were here with us last week, you know what he means by ministry. And what he be, means by ministry is this very sacrificial trying to rescue refugees and bring them home. Paul's concern is always that. Is anything I'm going to do mess with that mission? And if it's going to mess with that mission, I'm not going to do it. In 1 Corinthians, he, they want Paul uh, to take some money from some rich people there in Corinth, and, and, and then he wouldn't have to work as a tent maker. Uh, then he could just teach all the time because somebody's paying all of his bills. And, and Paul knows, though, that there's a tradition in these Greek city-states that if you have a patron who gives you money, you control what they say. We understand that. Hello, uh, politicians today, we all know this reality. Yes, they're driven by votes, but we all understand the reality that whoever's paying the money is who's pulling the strings, right? Like, that's just the way our world operates. Well, Paul understands that, and in the Greek city-states, it was very much that, say, that way. And Paul says, no, I won't take your money, because Paul was concerned it would mess with the ministry. Even if he didn't conform what he was doing, he knew the accusation could be there. So Paul's concern is always the ministry, not himself. I operate in love, not in fear. The fear of man is when I need you more than I love you. Fear of man is I need you to like me. I need you to love me. I need you to respect me. I need you to think well of me. I need you to follow me. I need you to prop me up. I need you to rescue my identity. I need you to think, make me think better of myself. When we operate that way, it controls everything we do and say. Everything. Very modest form. It could be a husband brings flowers home to his wife, brings them home, hands them to the wife. She says, thank you. She gives him a little peck on the cheek. She's good. He did not get the response he wanted. Now, if he brought this flowers home just to say, I love you, no big deal. Then to whatever degree it blesses her, let it bless her. But if he does it out of fear of man, I'm doing this to get from you. Now he's irritated because he didn't get the response he wanted. It's how we act if we do something for someone and we don't think they're grateful enough. Well, then the proof is in the pudding, right? We actually did it to get from them. How often are you tempted to do ministry that way? Oh, I'll serve, but they better be thankful. I'm willing to do this, but (laughs) they better know this is costing me. I mean, somebody ought to say something about the things I've done. Or how often are we tempted to be silent instead of speaking truth because we're afraid of losing the relationship? Well, somebody else can do that confronting. Somebody else can handle that hard word. You see, God, God, yeah, God wired me as a Barnabas. I'm an encourager. Uh, he, he didn't make me a Paul, an exhorter. Uh, so, so, so we know God had Barnabas and Paul's that, so I'm just going to do my Barnabas work. I'm going to let somebody else come in. And, you know, I'm more of the, of the golden retriever Labrador style. I am not the pit bull Rottweiler. You know, God needs his Rottweilers, but he also made me the poodle. And these are all just thin excuses for the reality we don't want to do hard things because we are tempted to do ministry in fear. Paul says this is not what drives him. What drives him is love. He looks at them the Corinthians and everyone else, and Paul vividly remembers what it was like to be in bondage to sin, to be blinded to his sinfulness and in desperate need of a Savior. And he sees other people that way, he sees lost people that way, and then he looks at other believers and he sees other believers and he says, they desperately need to grow to be like Jesus, not in some judgmental way, but just understanding we all need to grow to be like Jesus. And so I want to come into their life and I want to play this role, I want to have this this opportunity to help rescue them, but to do that, I'm going to have to love them And I'm going to have to not need them. I can't operate by fear of man. This is what they cannot understand about Paul. They cannot understand Paul's willingness to suffer rejection. They don't understand Paul's love for them transcends his need of them. Instead, instead, when you operate, you or I operate out of selfish motives, 
guess what we tend to do? We tend to interpret everyone else's ministry toward us as selfish also. And that's how we're working. We tend to accuse people of the sin we're committing. We know deep down we're doing things to get. We're doing things to get respect, to get gratitude, to get love, to get affection, to get relationship, to get friendship. We're doing to get. We're doing ministry that way. We can tell even if we don't expose it because our heart's like boiling inside of us when we don't get the love, respect, affection, approval that we want. And so we tend to assume anyone else that's ministering to us must be operating out of those warped motives also. So the Corinthians who are very selfish, they look at Paul and they see Paul's sacrifice and they're like, hmm, yeah, Paul's serving us, but Paul really wants money. But then Paul doesn't take a paycheck. And they're like, hmm, yeah, that didn't work. Paul loves us. See, he loves us, but he's doing it so we respect and follow him. And Paul's like, hmm. Yeah, but people ain't really respecting and following him either. And so, like, I can't figure out what he's getting from it. You know what he is? He's crazy. Selfish people can't even understand loving ministry. They assume there's some ulterior motive. They don't understand Paul's reputational sacrifice. So they assume Paul's getting something out of this, whether they can see it or not. And so Paul says, no, my driving motive is love. It's not for me, it's for the ministry. But then he gives us a dominant attribute. So this is his daily drive, is love them. The dominant overarching attribute is this powerful word, endurance. Now when you read down through your text and the way you see it translated, the best way to understand this sentence would actually be this way. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. You could boil this whole, at least the first third of this list, but almost really the totality of it, under this term endurance. All of this is to explain endurance. All of this is hard, and he bears up underneath of it. Endurance, we see it in so many texts, but, but primarily a couple of key truths about what it means to endure. And to endure is to keep on keeping on, to put it in our more modern-day lingo. It's to not stop. Endurance is to finish the race uh, it's, it's to do that, it's to lift that last set, it's, it, it's, it's to do that finishing touch, it's to keep after something long after you want to give up on it. We understand from Romans 5 that uh, Paul wrote this way, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, difficult things, because suffering produces endurance. And, and, and it really teaches you to endure. You only learn endurance when it's tough, when it's painful. When it's hard. But that's a good lesson because endurance produces character in Romans 5, 4. And the character there is the character of Christ. And character produces hope. And so we end up with this cycle of I hurt and I suffer and I endure and I put up with. And then God uses that to make me more like Jesus. And as I become more like Jesus, I become more confident. That's what hope is. A faithful confidence in the promises of God. And so Paul says, I'm learning, I've learned endurance. That tells us right off the bat then that to do ministry is to hurt. You know, it's fascinating. I went through Bible college and seminary and nobody ever told me that. In the last couple of years, reading lots of literature on leadership, I was struck in one class, I was reading these books on leadership, and the first six of, of these books that I read on leadership for this class, they were all secular. And guess what every one of them did within the first three chapters? Every single one of these secular books on leadership within the first three chapters said, I hope you're prepared to suffer because all leaders suffer, and if you're not willing to embrace suffering, you'll never be a leader. Paul got that. All ministry, all ministry will involve hurt. But that hurt is good because it's going to ultimately produce character and lead to hope. Or Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Do you need hope? Do you need a, this firm confidence in the faithful promises of God? Then read the word and endure in suffering. Or in Colossians, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance is not something you work up. 
It's a work of God in you coming out of you. It is a product of God in your life. He builds endurance. As you grow in your faith walk, your endurance should be growing. The proof, the proof then, Paul is saying, of the loving minister is they keep on keeping on. They endure. Loving ministry persists in the face of pain, struggles, and hardship for the sake of the glory of God. Loving ministry understands I don't stop when it hurts. I don't stop when it gets hard. I press on because God's glory is worth more than my comfort. Are you willing to embrace that? God's glory is worth more than my comfort. Selfish ministry wants to find ways to avoid the lifelong cost of following Jesus. You know, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Selfish ministry is looking for every spot where they can set that cross down for a while. Here's my break. Ministry has caught me a lot. I need a time out and a vacation. Here's my break. I lay this down. I'm not talking about recharging your batteries. I'm not talking about well-portioned uh, stewardship of your time and your body, taking some time off, taking some vacation, a Sabbathing. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about stepping aside from doing the work of ministry because guess what? Even on vacation, guess what you do? You minister, right? You, you still find ways to love and serve. It's just a different kind of loving service. It's a different kind of work that you do. Even Sabbath, people misunderstand, Sabbath day rest. On the Sabbath day, the Jews had to get up. They had to get washed. We're talking pre-Pharisees before they came up with all these extra rules. They had to get themselves together. They had to walk to temple or tabernacle. They had to sing. They spent hours singing and listening to the law read. Hours. Before they ever ate the food, the manna that they gathered the day before, they still had to make bread. They still had to fix it. They couldn't make it ahead of time or it'd go rotten. Does that sound like a day off? It was a different kind of work. It was worship work in community. It's a different kind of work. And so the problem is selfish ministry doesn't want the sacrifice of it. Selfish ministry doesn't want the cross work of it. It wants to lay it aside. But loving ministry pushes on. It endures all along the way. And so we begin to realize that the daily uh, attribute or daily aspect, daily attitude of the minister is one of love for ministry and that dominant attribute is to endure. And now Paul comes to this list. <laughs> uh, this list is tough. Uh, it's tough because there's lots in there. And I'll be honest with you, I wrestled substantially this week with how do you preach through this, lift, this list. Because one of the things you could do is you could examine them one by one. And, and so I'm going to read them again, this lengthy list to us one more time. And I, and I want you to follow along in your Bibles when I do. Because we could look at it one by one, but we're not going to do that this morning. And here's why. Because that's not why Paul intended it. Paul intended this list um, to give a to to totality of his biography, right? So, so we can think of it this way. Um, there are certain things that would be inside jokes with people. Certain things because of our relational connection, we're going to laugh at because we know and they know, but nobody else knows. Um, like, like, for example... If I said, I used to work with a guy, his name was Buck Usick. Buck had the greatest phrases ever. Like I remember one time we were working together, we were doing something. He said, man, that is as useless as a cat with two tails. I'm like, what? Buck was from Nebraska. So Buck said what Buck wanted to say and you just went with it. Uh, and, and so if I want to talk about something useless, uh, that would be like with Will Thorson. I said, man, that's as useless as having lockdown on sheep in Catan. And we're both like, yeah, that's pointless. And everybody's like, you're a game nerd. And you're right, I am. But it doesn't make sense to people. So, so sometimes when we communicate inside information, everyone else is lost. This, thankfully, isn't quite that bad for us. This is more along the lines of me talking biographical information. So if I said, yeah, I'm thinking of a guy right now. Man, what was his name? Uh, didn't he, like, chop down a cherry tree and couldn't tell his dad? Like, oh, man, what was that guy's name? Well, didn't he have some, like, wooden teeth or something? And, man, what was his name? Wasn't he, like, this famous general? And, and didn't he have, like, Mount Vernon in Virginia? And everyone's like, it's George Washington. Get it together, Steve. We know. We're enough in. We have enough biographical information 
that we can understand what we're talking about. Paul's list here is biographical information. So if we wanted to, and, and I would encourage you, um, you can actually take each one of these in between the book of Acts, history of the church, and Paul's epistles, you can come up with examples for every one of these. The way Paul's using it, though, is understanding that the Corinthians know all this to be true. They have the same knowledge about Paul that, that most of us would have to read this and say, oh yeah, I do remember something. Man, Luke and Acts did talk about him getting beaten. Oh yeah, I do remember in Acts and talking about him getting thrown in jail. Oh yeah, I do know how he put up with this nonsense. And that's the way he intends it, so that's the way we're going to work our way through this list. So listen to the biography of Pauline ministry. Like, right, like if we were giving somebody's biography, they graduated from this college, they went to the seminary, they ministered here, they pastored there, they did this here, they wrote this, they were published in this, they did this. This is Paul's biography of ministry as evidence, again, that he's motivated by love and driven by endurance. Paul says this way, in afflictions, hardships, calamities. Those are my general sufferings. Beatings, imprisonments, riots. Those are sufferings caused by people. Labors, sleepless nights, hunger. You might think of those as uh, sufferings as a result of self-discipline. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. You might think of those as the character that dominated his ministry. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Those are the tools of his ministry. Now, beginning in verse 8, we get the reality of what ministry was really like for Paul on a daily basis. Through honor and dishonor. Through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. And so we're just going to talk about them categorically. We'll just take a couple minutes this way. The cost of loving ministry in verse 4, four and 5, these costs are, are general when he talks about afflictions, hardships, and calamities. Um, he will go into these more, in more detail later uh, in his biographical sketch, even in Corinthians and Certainly from Acts, Paul suffered shipwrecks. He went without food at times. He even went without clothing, adequate clothing at times. And uh, in one of his last epistles, he writes asking them to bring his cloak. And it's because he's cold, because he's chained up in a dungeon. The nature of Paul's ministry was it was costly to him. He experiences some of these as a direct result of travel and difficult times. He's on the road. He's on the move. He, he is constant vagabond, dependent upon the generosity and care and hospitality of others. He's forsaken uh, the ability to have a wife and children for the sake of ministry. He has forsaken the comforts of his own home with his own table to put his feet under. He works hard with his hands in order that he might provide for himself and give to others instead of being thought of as a sellout and someone whose message can be bought. There's people costs. There's relational cost as Paul does ministry. People literally physically beat him up. They afflict him. They buffet him. They, they whip him. They enchain him. They throw him into prisons and into dungeons. Whole groups of cities, whole groups of people in cities rise up with riots. We saw riots over the last summer that we haven't seen the likes of for many, many years. At times, peaceful protests turn into criminal enterprises of selfishness. Riots are terrifying because 
they're anti-authoritarian and there's no control. There's a mob mentality and psychologists have studied mob mentality and in a mob mentality, what it means is people who would otherwise never break the law, suddenly they're in a massive group of people that are doing horrible things and they then themselves violate their own moral conscience to go along with the crowd. And as they studied mob mentalities, and you really saw it in a governmental way in Nazi Germany, where suddenly people who would otherwise ethically be opposed to something actually become incited to do things and to, to top one another. Worse and worse and worse behavior. And nobody puts a check on it. There were entire riots over wanting to get at Paul and to kill him. We can only think of how terrifying that would be to be at the center of that hurricane. There's people cost. Paul experiences personal rejections of friends, abandonment of friends. Even Mark, in his first journey with Paul, he suffers and so he ditches them. Somebody that Paul is investing in and pouring his life into, he's kind of taken under his wing. Mark had been first discipled by Peter. Paul takes him under his wing and now it just gets too hard for Mark, so he ditches and runs. In a more acute way, the Corinthians, whom he has literally brought into this world of faith, he preached the gospel to him. To them, now they reject him. It is phenomenal to consider the reality that sometimes in ministry, your closest friends will be the ones who betray you and reject you. Paul says he suffered in a self-disciplined way. In order to be an effective minister, he works very, very hard. Labors there uh, is this idea of working your finger to the bone. Destroying his eyes by reading by candlelight at night. Sore fingers from pricks of, of needles of mending tents. Exhausted by dictating letters to others. Paul works so long and so late he has many sleepless nights. He gives up sleep for the sake of the work, but he also gives up sleep because his heart cares for them. Reminded us, brand new parents trying to help our oldest sleep through the night. And you're laying there, and he's laying in this Moses basket kind of a thing at the end of our bed. And you're listening to your kids sleep, and, and when they're first home, I remember... Uh, yeah, they're crying, and then you're trying to get them to sleep through the night after, I don't know, it feels like it was eight, ten weeks, somewhere in there, getting them to sleep through the night. And, and one time I'm, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I didn't hear him breathing. And I mean, my heart rate probably went from like, I don't know, 60 beats a minute to 230. I mean, I couldn't get to the end, of, and he was sleeping fine. I just couldn't hear it, right? He's fine. But the sleeplessness is attached to compassion and love. Have you ever ministered to somebody? I'm not talking about your spouse or your kid or your parent. To somebody. And you lose sleep over spiritual burdening for them. This is the way Paul was. He cared about the churches and people. So he had sleepless nights for them. He went hungry. He went without food. You can think of the ministry of Jesus at times where his disciples were trying to grab him and say, come and eat. Come away. Uh, no, leave Jesus alone right now. And Jesus at times going without food and going without sleep and exhausted in order to do ministry. At one point in Jesus' ministry, he's so exhausted, he's thirsting, he's hungry, so he just sits down by a well. And then we have John chapter 4 because he spends the next several minutes with this rejectioning woman. It's like trying to hug a porcupine, speak truth to her. And he does that when he's exhausted and hungry. Some of us live in hangry world. I mean, if I skip a meal, don't talk to me, let alone do ministry. Which, what? All of this is out of love. Does ministry cost you? Yeah. I mean, this is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I do ministry out of love, and here's the proof. It costs me. And so it's, it's a valid point as we see Paul's ministry to ask us, does ministry cost you? It will be, it will cost you if it's done out of love. And so then I think a very valid question is, how much does it cost you? Well, I mean, I mean let's be honest. Have you been beaten, imprisoned, been in danger, rejected, attacked, lost sleep, gone without goods and comfort? I, I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 12 when we're told to run the race with endurance. Here we're seeing a picture of endurance. 
And he, he says this in Hebrews 12. I love <laughs> this, is, this is beautiful. This is almost like when you're, you're trying to train your kid um, to not make a big deal out of every boo-boo, right? And so they fall down, they skin their knee, and there's two kinds of, of adults in this world. Adult A, oh no! I mean, you'd think we need 911 an emergency room visit. And I'm just going to give the polls, right? So that's one, right? Um, this kid is on, you, you, you know, next time you see the kid, he's wearing skater knee pads and they're like duct tape to him, right? He can't even function. And then the other poll, the parent is like, ah, you're all right. Rub a little dirt in it. That'll help your antibodies anyway. Don't cry. I'm trying to raise, I'm trying to raise solid adult here, right? Grow up. <laughs> and so you got, kind of got your poll people. Okay. So you get to Hebrews 12 and you're suffering and, and life's really hard. And like Hebrews 12 literally communicates this way. Are you dead yet? Like, no, but Jesus did die. So how about you keep running? Like, that's essentially what it says. You ain't dead, keep running. And so I, I, I just want to ask it that way. Like, is ministry costing you? Because if it's done in love, if I look at the life of Jesus and what he says, and I read Hebrews 12, and I read what Paul's saying, it ought to. And if it's not, like costing you, there's every real chance you're actually not engaging in loving ministry. You're doing it where it's comfortable or convenient. And so then he gives the character of loving ministry, though. He's already taught us that while he wants gospel fruit, he embraces faithfulness as the core of why he does what he does. Paul is driven by love, but he's anchored by character. That's so important because we, love can be so confusing for us, right? So, so sometimes we, we love somebody and we would say, well, I love them and that's why I'm not saying anything. And we can point to scripture that would tell us that, right? Um, that words spoken in due season are apples of gold and settings of silver. In other words, it's a beautiful ornament. In other words, there's sometimes you and I need to zip the lip. Or, or, or as Sanford used to say in Sanford the Son, zippeth the lippeth, right? Like you need to not be talking. But the problem is sometimes we ought to be talking, but we're not, and we say it's because I love them. And then there's other times we're running our gums and, and we ought to keep, sh keep that thing silent. And we said, no, I'm saying something because I love them. And real love would be, so it can be very confusing uh, to us to function this way. Now, if it's pure biblical love, it's not confusing. We begin to understand there's times to talk, times not. Rebuke a fool according to his folly, uh, lest he be continuing his ways. But then the next, very next verse, rebuke not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. So we're going to need wisdom and discernment here. But what helps the most is character. True integrity. And remember, endurance helps produce that. And so Paul is saying my ministry is not just marked by the cost, but it's marked by the character of it. He's more driven by faithfulness to the truth than he is by fruitfulness he thinks he'll give. Each one of these descriptions in 6 through 7a frame the ethics of his ministry. He's quick in there, just buried in there, to point out proactive kindness, but also reactive patience when he deals with people. That's character. He's bound by moral integrity and purity. Uh, he relates, and this is why Paul could write with great authority about sexual purity and why he could write with great authority teaching young Pastor Timothy, treat older women like your mother and younger women like your sisters. He wants them to stay morally pure. He understands the moral integrity and purity of the minister is preeminent. And when we say minister here, yeah, you can think pastor and elder, but Paul's writing to a whole church of ministers. And so moral integrity is an imperative here. He is careful and wise when it talks about him having knowledge. This is to perceive a situation and to know and to understand by biblical wisdom. How should I respond to this? I want my tone to match the text that I'm going to give to you, is what Paul is saying. I, I want the way I say it to match the what that I'm saying so that God can produce the work in you. And so there's a knowledge to him as he speaks to them. He says all of this is through the power of the Spirit. 
And all of this is bound by love. Paul is very quick in this moment then to point out this is not because he himself has personal character, but it's character that's been worked in him as a result of the power of the Spirit. And all of it, again, is bound time after time by love. Does character mark your ministry? Are you one person with one group and another person with another group? Do you agree over here and agree over there and really nary the twain can meet? Are you a person that frankly others might describe as trying to nail down like jello? Because you conform to whatever situation so that you don't experience rejection, then you lack moral integrity. Are you an honest person with the way you speak about the gospel and the way you handle the word? Are you honest enough to tell someone when you're confronting them, just so you know, this is a difficult conversation, but God has been working on me for the last two weeks with a chainsaw carving this pine log hanging out of my face. I happen to see a little dust in your eye that I think we need to talk about, but I want to come in humility and own who I really am also. Or in Galatians 6, I come along beside you to do ministry, but I want to walk in humility because there's literally nothing you have done that either I haven't also done or I absolutely could or would do in the right circumstances. He says the character drives my ministry, but then he gives you the tools of loving ministry. Verse 7b, he, he calls these things weapons. He says, weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And, and what does he mean there? Well, you, you hold your sword in one hand, your shield in the other. What, what Paul is essentially saying is that whatever he needs to do the job, God's given him the right weapon for it through the righteousness of Christ. He says, ministry is not like any other business. Ministry is not like um, running a shop or, or fixing a car or building a house or, or running your own company even. Ministry isn't like any of that. Matter of fact, the thing that ministry would be closest to is warfare. It's battle. You go to have a conversation with someone about the gospel, that's spiritual warfare. You're lined up on, on opposite sides of the valley. The Goliath in the middle is their sinful heart, and it needs some Jesus righteousness to kill the giant. It's warfare. Ministry is warfare when you go to lay aside your fleshly desires and your preferences for the sake of loving and serving someone else. It's warfare. It's warfare when you go to confront and to disciple. It's warfare when you take of your own goods to, to make things for others and provide for others. And when you give up your time schedule in order to serve others and, and you give up your gasoline to drive to go meet somebody, it's warfare because your heart, your fleshly heart is raging in you. The whole time. And so Paul says, whatever I've needed for the battle, God has fully equipped me. The tools of loving ministry are weapons of God given through the righteousness of Christ. One of the best ways you could ever become acquainted with the true nature of spiritual warfare is to enter into someone else's life with ministry. You're going to find out real quick it's war. You'll find out real quick how selfish you are. It's kind, of, it's kind of like when you get married or you have a kid or um, you're put in a difficult situation, suddenly your selfishness is exposed. You didn't realize how selfish you were. You didn't realize how irritated you could be if the dishwasher ain't loaded exactly the way you want the dishwasher loaded. And suddenly, yes, it is worth a whole evening of conflict. Yes, it is. Yes, sir. And suddenly you're caught in a spot where you're supposed to do ministry and your selfishness is exposed. And lots of times, I just want you to notice, lots of times the warfare of ministry is with your own heart. And you do fights. And we fight over all kinds of foolish things or we're given an opportunity to serve. And the first thing that comes to our mind is all the other people that could do that service. That should be like, next time that happens, <laughs> dead giveaway. Next time that happens, that should be like submarine diving bell. Burnt, 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 burnt. That's Jesus putting his finger on your heart. Because that ain't the Holy Spirit helping you come up with the list of everybody else that needs to do that ministry. That's not the Spirit. That's your flesh. 
and you need to do some warfare. Or you think you have the best laid plans for this difficult conversation. You get your legal pad. This is Steve World. You got your legal pad. I got my questions written out. I got my scripture associated with it. And I bathed this in prayer. Had to take off that legal sheet and use another one because it got tear stains on it, right? I'm praying for this. I got, but I got a plan. Here's the plan. And then I go in and like, I don't know, 0.3 seconds into the meeting, plan out the window. Because this meeting just took a hard left where you didn't even think it was going. And suddenly, you know what you need? You need some spirit-empowered weapons to do a work. Because you realize real fast, this can't be of you. You want to learn the ministry of spiritual warfare? Get in and start doing it with people. You'll learn real fast. Paul says it's not just my tools, but here's the truth. What's the truth of doing loving ministry? And you'd almost think Paul's schizophrenic. (laughs) The truth is you get both sides all the time. And what's interesting is all of these are present right in the church. Now, those of you that have, have, have been able to be with, who've endured with us from 1 Corinthians through this part of 2 Corinthians, you already know this is true about Corinth. Through honor and dishonor. There are people in Corinth that honor him. There's other people that dishonor him. Through, through slander and praise. Got both of those. We're treated as imposters. Yep, a fake apostle. Others say he's true. As unknown. Who's Paul? Remember Paulus and a Peter and Jesus? And then other people, known. yeah, I'm of the group of Paul, as dying, and behold, we live as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, poor not making, yet making many rich, as a direct play on words of Jesus, who left the wealth of heaven, that he might bring us into the wealth of his inheritance, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. The truth of loving ministry is you're never going to make everybody happy. You're going to experience both of these. You do loving ministry, it's not always going to be successful, and not everybody's going to be happy with you. Uh, There are times, listen, I'll just tell you experientially, there's times I've preached a sermon, and literally that day received both condemnation and commendation. I mean, the same exact sermon, hit people two different ways, got them both. Um, done ministry in a certain way that people said, thank you so much for doing X. Gotten an email, I cannot believe you did X. You're like, what? This, like, I thought I was crazy. This text is so helpful. This is the reality of ministry. Now, why is that so important to know? Because if you don't know this text, you'll think you are crazy. You'll, you'll be like, what is wrong? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with this moment? How is this operating? But he says, this is the truth when you do loving ministry. It isn't pretty. It's conflicting and hard and confusing. You will make and you will lose friends. You will be commended and condemned for the same thing. The truth is, do not expect, look for, or anticipate consistent praise or rebuke. Anticipate this reality. Ministry done in integrity and in the power of the Spirit here will anger some and comfort others, embolden these and frighten those. And that's the way it's going to be. All of these evidences all along the way. Now, are there any rewards there? (laughs) In studying through this text this week, it kept occurring to me that Paul is ministering in an environment with the Corinthians where he is really deprived of their affection. They are not teachable. Uh, One of the ways we would understand and the reason God commands his children to love him, the reason Jesus says love him, the reason Paul says love these guys who are watching for your souls, the reason Paul commands their love, it really boils down to this, the connection between love and obedience. Because God, Jesus says this, if you love me, you will obey me. Paul's concern here, as we've seen through his motives, is not receiving personal affection from them because he doesn't have it. The proof is in the pudding. If Paul did ministry to get from them, then Paul really is crazy because he isn't getting it from them. Move on to the next crowd. Stay right there in Ephesus where they actually cried when you left rather than got happy. But Paul is doing this, and he understands the connection between the rejection of the servant of God and the rejection of the truth of God itself. That's what's going on. And so their hearts are so narrow, their hearts are so restricted, they're not receiving 
truth because they don't love so why do it <laughs> i mean let's be real why do it as i'm studying this and looking through this text i discovered a unique structure to these verses this is one of those where sometimes you're digging into passage, you're digging into passage, and you see some gold on top, and you dig a little further, you get some rubies, you dig a little further, you get some emeralds, and then you dig down and you start hitting some diamonds. Because there's another passage we could actually overlay here that is a beautiful picture of the way we should think about doing ministry. And it's the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'll just show you this real quickly in here in a moment, but very quickly about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus famous sermon recorded in Matthew. Matthew records several sermons of Christ. One of them is Sermon on the Mount. At parts of that sermon, Matthew's the only one where we get the totality, five, six, and seven. But elements of that sermon show up consistently through Jesus' teaching. They show up predominantly in the Gospel of Luke. So we would understand this. Jesus had sermons that he preached that he kept coming back to the same truths over and over and over again. And in Matthew, he opens with the famous Beatitudes. And we call them the blessing passages, right? Blessed are you if you do this. Blessed are you if you do this. Blessed are you do this. And really it means happy. And there's an important thing for you to understand about this to understand how this works with ministry. In the Beatitudes, it would say things like this. Blessed are you if you're pure because you will get X. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Now here's what's fascinating about that. What that means is one day you live a life of peacemaking here, you'll walk into glory, and you will be embraced as a son or daughter of God. That's one day. That's the not yet. But isn't the truth if you are saved, you are already a son or daughter of God? It is. So the Beatitudes work in a fascinating way because what he's telling us is there is a future, I mean, just hard to describe amazing blessing for walking as a kingdom citizen but guess what happy you will be in god's eyes and in his work even now as you walk that way there is unmitigated reward for living out the sermon on the mount now but astounding shocking reward in heaven one day also it's the already not yet you start layering these beside each other, though, and you have the cost of doing ministry. And what does he say in Matthew 5.10? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul's living ministry, persecuted for righteousness' sake. Or in their character, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think that's phenomenal, because not only will we be ushered into God's presence, but we've already learned where does character come from endurance how do you get to see and taste jesus now learn to endure through suffering here or tools of loving ministry blessed are you when others revile you persecute you utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you or matthew 5 verse 3 blessed are the poor in spirit that, that does mean i go without everything i'm like a beggar before god for theirs is the kingdom of heaven do you know why paul was doing this ministry absolutely paul is doing this ministry because he loves god and loves others there's no question there but paul is also doing this ministry experiencing the blessing of god do you want god's blessing do you want to taste and see the goodness of God here? And so what does he do as a result? Verse 11. Because of all this then, we have spoken freely to you. He speaks frankly to them. Now, last thing I want to say about this loving ministry is this. You cannot escape the opening of your mouth throughout this entire section. He talks about us being ambassadors. He talks about us shouting for God. He talks about speaking frankly to them. Now, loving ministry does not have to involve words. I want to be very careful the way I say this. Loving ministry does not have to involve words. However, however, people do not get mad at you, reject you, or despise you for cleaning their house. People do not break off their friendship with you for making them a meal, cutting their grass, fixing their stuff, or volunteering your time, money, and effort to care for them. 
you will not experience the rejection. You will not experience the cost. You will not have such desperate need for the endurance. All of that is vital, valuable ministry. It is. Just go to Christ healing people, feeding people, and washing feet. But that is not where the problems arise in ministry. The problems come and Paul's fullness of love is exposed for them because he speaks frankly to them. Boldly, directly, and clearly. Because he loves them more than he needs them. I guarantee you, if you were at a gas station, you left your child in the car and you went inside the gas station to pay, as you came out of the gas station, you saw your little boy or little girl falling along behind some guy headed toward the panel van with no windows. I guarantee you, you wouldn't stay silent and say, I'll just make their favorite dessert tonight. I flat out guarantee you, you'd start screaming your head off. You'd speak frankly and directly. You wouldn't even worry about rejection because you love them. Paul does ministry in a loving way, rescuing refugees. And as a result, he experiences quite a bit of suffering, but he also experiences incredible blessing. Can I just ask you, into whose life are you speaking frankly? Do it to taste the kingdom. Do it for the blessing. Do it out of love. Obey the command. Narrow hearts block the joy of loving ministry to them. It can't come from them. Open hearts will know the blessing of ministry through them and receive truth given to them. May God give us wide open hearts to love God and love others. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for